The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Christina Marusik. She's an award-winning journalist who covers environmental health and justice for Environmental Health News, a publication of Environmental Health Sciences, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to driving science into public discussion and policy. Ms. Maruzic holds an MFA in nonfiction writing from the University of San Francisco, and her reporting and personal essays on environment, health, food, and politics have been published in the Washington Post, Women's Health, CNN, Slate, and many more. Today, we're going to be talking about her excellent new book, A New War on Cancer, The Unlikely Heroes Revolutionizing Prevention. She's based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Christina. Hi, Melinda. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start our conversation with a simple question, and that is, how did you become interested in being a journalist and specifically focusing on environmental issues? So I always had an interest in the environment. I think for a lot of us, that is kind of organic. You know, growing up, I loved spending time outside and I felt really connected to animals and nature I was just kind of naturally drawn to learning more about the natural world and had a natural impulse to protect it. And I think as it became more and more clear to me that the state of the natural world also influenced how healthy we can be where we live, it also became really clear to me that this was an issue of justice and that this topic deserved a lot more attention than it was getting. I think even now, sometimes when I tell people what I do, people just kind of don't understand the general concept of environmental health. I often find that I have to explain, this is about the ways that what's happening in the environment impacts human health. And so I think it's really important to communicate and convey to people that the environment isn't just something out there that we should protect for the sake of the polar bears and the whales and the trees, but you know, it's where we live and how healthy our environment is determines how healthy we can be. I'm trying to think when I might have learned that the environment was key to our health. And I can't remember ever having that subject really hammered home. Like you say, the environment seems to be separate from us in so many ways. And yet we, of course, can't be healthy without having access to clean air, water, and food. So it makes sense, but I too struggle with helping people see those connections. Yeah, I think it's a shame that that's not more tied into the education we get about the environment. I grew up in an era where In elementary school, we talked a lot about recycling and we celebrated Earth Day in school. And I was certainly raised and taught to care about the environment. But I don't think I got that lesson explicitly 
that our health as humans is dependent on how healthy our environment is. Right. Well, your book is an excellent expose of both the science of cancer, and I think the introduction makes it painfully clear that we better wake up and start paying attention. And to our listeners who may not be aware, one in every 285 American children will receive a cancer diagnosis before the age of 20. You've got statistics on how much childhood leukemia has increased, brain cancers have increased. What struck me, too, was from 1975 to 2019, there was a 76% increase in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and that is often termed the farmer's cancer. So we see cancer rates increasing, but rarely do we focus on prevention. In fact, you mentioned that most of the funding that is raised for cancer, between 7 to 9% goes to prevention. Most of it is channeled into treatment. Tell me more about that. I think there are a few reasons that's happening. We're 50 years into the war on cancer, and I would say we're not winning it. So we've gotten a lot better at treating cancer than we used to be. And survival rates for most types of cancer are much better today than they were in the past. But that doesn't mean we've solved the problem of cancer. More than a thousand Americans still die from cancer every day. One in three Americans is now expected to get a cancer diagnosis at some point in our lifetime. And surviving cancer is really difficult and traumatic and unpleasant. Survivors have medical issues as a result of having cancer or sometimes as a result of their treatment for cancer that can last a lifetime and cause other health issues. And then they also have to deal with the anxiety of having to get follow-up scans for the rest of their lives and always being afraid that their disease might come back. Yeah, that's right. The main reason we're not preventing cancer is, as you said, we're not funding prevention. So only 7 to 9% of global cancer funds go toward prevention. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first is money. The global oncology market is valued at around $330 billion right now, and it's projected to grow to around $580 billion in 2050 as cancer rates continue to increase. And that means that a lot of investors stand to make a lot of money from new treatment for cancer. And unfortunately, there's no similar market projection for cancer prevention. Nobody stands to get super rich from funding cancer prevention, which means that a drive for prevention and funding for prevention is going to have to come from places outside of the market. We can't rely on the market to fix this problem for us. So that's going to come namely from laws and regulations and governments and nonprofits. And the other reason I think that we don't adequately fund prevention is that it's harder to advocate for prevention. When you're advocating for a cure or for better treatments, you can put the face of a mom or a little kid who has cancer on the poster and the t-shirts and the Facebook pages. And it's really easy to get people to feel empathy and want to join the fight and help them out. But when we talk about prevention, it ends up being really data heavy. It's a lot of statistics about long-term trends in cancer rates. And it's the nature of prevention that you don't get to know whose cancer you prevented. You don't get to meet the person whose life you saved. 
or the parents you spared from the trauma of receiving a childhood cancer diagnosis. So that's actually the main reason my book features profiles of people who are advocating for prevention. So I really wanted to try and humanize this story. Mm -hmm. You do a beautiful job of presenting the statistics, but mostly you feature people who are unlikely heroes and who are making a difference in their community. I want to jump back for just a moment with regard to prevention. You mentioned that 80,000 chemicals are used in products sold to American consumers and fewer than 1% are tested for safety. And what always comes up when we talk about taking the precautionary principle where we don't put something on the market until it's deemed safe. The problem with that, people will say, oh, no, we're, we can't afford to wait to bring this particular chemical to market. And there is a huge amount of anti-regulation rhetoric. And I wonder, where does this anti-regulation rhetoric come from? And why is it so effective? In the United States, my sense is that this mostly comes from the Republican Party. And a really prominent example that people may remember is that on Donald Trump's first day in office as president, one of his first executive orders said that if you were going to propose a new regulation, you had to offer up two other regulations that could be repealed in order for that regulation to be considered. And this was with no regard for what these regulations did. It was just a blanket policy saying regulation is bad. We're going to have less of it. And our regulations protect us in lots of ways. They protect us from abuses in our workplaces. They protect us from exposure to cancer-causing chemicals. They protect our environment from being destroyed by industry. And I think we're seeing this in other parts of the world too, but there's a uniquely American bent to this anti-regulation rhetoric that you're describing that I think makes it even harder here than it is in some places. You mentioned the precautionary principle and the European Union is much closer to that model when it comes to regulating harmful chemicals. So they're not doing a perfect job. But in general, if a company wants to put a new chemical on the market there, the onus is on that company to demonstrate that they've done the science to prove that the chemical is safe. Whereas here, we tend to just rush things to market and then if 20 years later, a bunch of people get cancer or otherwise get sick from that product, then the onus is on them to hire lawyers and pay scientists to prove that that product harmed them. And we do that through class action lawsuits, which often stand in for chemical regulations in the United States. And we're seeing recent examples of that. We've seen that with, certainly with asbestos, we've seen that with Johnson & Johnson baby powder, those huge lawsuits recently that were won by people who got cancer from using contaminated baby powder. We're seeing that now with lawsuits around PFAS exposure. 3M just made a huge settlement with a giant class action lawsuit for damages from PFAS exposure, which is also a carcinogen. So in an ideal world, we would make companies responsible for proving that their products were safe rather than putting that burden on people who are sickened by chemicals that aren't regulated. Right. You know, you make an excellent point in many of the presentations that you've given, and that is that we really need to reframe the conversation. And part of that reframing 
is talking about regulations and all of the good that regulations do in terms of keeping our water safe, as you mentioned, our air. I was also thinking about buildings that have collapsed that might be linked to a lack of building regulations. So I think part of our responsibility as journalists, as communicators and educators, is to help people see all of the ways that regulations are good and keep us safe and well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think we tend to hear, I know that I feel like I hear disparaging remarks about regulations and how hard they make it to do business pretty often. And it's one of those things where we don't often consider when things are going well, when buildings and bridges aren't collapsing, that's generally because we have strong regulations that are ensuring that those things are safe for us. And I agree that it's important to get that message out. Christina, let me take one break. And I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Ms. Christina Marusik. She's an award-winning journalist writing for Environmental Health News, and I'll provide a link to that, as well as her excellent new book titled A New War on Cancer, The Unlikely Heroes Revolutionizing Prevention. I'm sure it was hard to settle on the people that you have chosen to focus on in this book, because I'm sure you spoke to many people who you would have wanted to include in this book, but you had to make a cut. As it was, I think this book took you four years to put together. Why did you choose the handful of individuals that you selected to be the unlikely heroes? I wanted to profile people who were doing work focused on systemic change when it comes to cancer prevention and preventing us from being exposed to cancer-causing chemicals in our everyday lives. And as you said, I spoke with lots of people as I was researching the book and in the course of my reporting on this subject. And the people who made it into the book had stories that made me feel a little less despair about the enormity of this problem, that made me feel like there were reasons for hope and like we've seen good progress on work toward having a safer world and learning their story made me feel hopeful and inspired and made me want to figure out ways to get involved and contribute. And so I hope that their stories will do that for readers too. Absolutely. And another feature of your book that I love is the appendix because you provide organizations where people can go under different categories of interest. And I think that there's so much to be concerned about. I mean, climate being one, the multitude of chemicals that we are exposed to, the issue of fossil fuels being at the heart of cancer formation, whether we're talking about transportation, plastics, pesticides, etc. But your appendix helps lead us to organizations that we can join with so we don't have to go it alone. And I think that's one of the struggles that many of us feel. You know, we feel like, gosh, what can I do? The problems are so large. But finding others to join with to make a difference is a relief. Yeah, I think it's really reassuring to know that we don't have to start from scratch because there are people and organizations that have been working really hard on this issue for decade now. And so we can just help them continue the good work they've already been doing and maybe think of new ways to contribute too. I certainly wouldn't want to put anyone off if they are feeling inspired to come up with 
a new plan or new approaches that aren't already being addressed by the organizations that do this work. But I think it's reassuring to learn that there are people who've devoted their lives to this work. And not all of us are going to do that, but we absolutely can show up and support the efforts that are already underway. Exactly. Well, I want to bring forth one of the people that you've highlighted in this book, and you speak about her many times in your public presentations, Melanie Mead. And when I read her story about how when she was a kid, her mother used to call her and her siblings inside from playing in the yard every day at noon to make them change their clothes and wash their faces because they'd be covered in soot. And for those of us who are lucky enough not to live in communities where that is a necessity, it's helpful to put ourselves in the shoes of the characters in your book. And Melanie is one of them. There's something that you write about Melanie that I thought was really interesting, and I have felt this too. You write that Melanie was often frustrated by her friends and neighbors' lack of support for the cause. For multiple reasons, people may not have the energy or will to join in these causes. But you mentioned that she regularly came up against this blind loyalty to the steel company that is making her community sick. And I wondered if you would read for us from page 166, the paragraph that starts with some think. Some think this phenomenon is driven by a willingness to sacrifice. The idea that communities like Clareton are willing to give up on their own health, not only for access to jobs, but for the good of the nation. It's an attitude that persists in places where extractive industries have always been dominant, like the greater Appalachian region, where first there was coal, then oil, then coke and steel, and now natural gas. All have left death, disease, and environmental disasters in their wake. But dying of black lung or in a mining accident is often portrayed as an act of patriotism necessary to keep America running, similar to the sacrifices made by fallen soldiers or police officers. Casualties of our unsuccessful war on cancer are often bestowed similar narratives. Heroes who battled valiantly, rather than victims of corporate greed and regulatory failure whose illnesses could have been prevented. U.S. Steel is a for-profit company whose CEO took home more than $10 million in total compensation in 2020. But for many Clareton residents, the company might as well represent American values themselves, and those values demand loyalty. Christina, I think this is one of the most important points that you make in this book, and I've never seen it described elsewhere in other stories about environment and human health harm. But I have seen it in agricultural communities as well, where farmers are regularly exposed to hazardous chemicals that are making a handful of companies a lot of money. But they are sacrificed. Their health of their families is sacrificed. And if you talk to some of these farmers, they'll say, well, you know, I'm feeding the world. So they've bought this idea that they're sacrificing for a common good. But I think they've been misled. Yeah, I think, you know, I wanted to write about this phenomenon that happens in these communities. And I was so interested to hear you say that about farmers. I hadn't really made the connection that a similar narrative would be happening, but with this idea that we're feeding the world, so this sacrifice is noble or worthwhile. But this is something I turned to sociology for. So I spent a lot of time looking at scientific studies for the book. And I reference and cite a lot of epidemiological studies 
and other kind of scientific research. But when I wanted to explore this idea, I turned to sociology. And I found a handful of papers looking at how this happens in coal towns, for example, or in mining towns in West Virginia and Appalachia. And it really was a light bulb moment for me, too. I thought, oh, that's what's happening here. Sometimes you see this in fracking communities, too, where there's this desire to feel like were part of the global economy. I spoke with one sociologist that this didn't make it into the book, but I talked to a sociologist for a story I was writing about this. And she said, for Appalachia specifically, there's been this kind of cultural narrative of social or cultural backwardness and the idea that people from Appalachia are hillbillies. And there might be similar narratives that have happened for people in other parts of rural America. And that when these industries came along, they were promising not only jobs and economic development and prosperity, but also a sense of belonging to the larger culture and a sense of being important to the global economy because energy that is necessary to keep America running, it does tend to actually be tied more into nationalism and a sense of global community that they're making an important contribution to the national economy and that that brings a sense of belonging that might otherwise be missing from these kind of alienating cultural narratives that tend to be dominant about people from Appalachia. And I thought that made so much sense. I interviewed lots of lawmakers and residents in Pennsylvania who were really supportive of this giant petrochemical facility that went in in Western Pennsylvania recently, owned and operated by Shell here in Beaver County in Western Pennsylvania, who were really excited about the industry and said things to me, despite all of the pollution it was going to cause. And they said things to me like, it's putting Beaver County on the map. People know who we are now. People have heard of us. And it was so clearly part of what this sociologist had described, this sense of wanting to belong and and wanting to be part of an important bigger narrative, which is a little bit heartbreaking, I think. It most certainly is. I see this too with regard to ethanol production, where we see big billboards advertising jobs, keeping America strong with locally generated fuel. And at the same time, the corn that's being grown for ethanol is grown with toxic chemicals that are polluting the environment. So it's all connected. And you've taken a lot of science and you've put a face on it. And you help us walk in the shoes of others. You've got Barry Breen as a consistent story that's woven throughout. And I think that it keeps us turning the pages to see what happens to Barry. But this book is hopeful. And it's a comment that you make frequently when you are giving book talks, that yes, cancer is tragic. And the increasing rates and the chemicals, it's overwhelming. But you provide examples of hope in these pages. And I know that that was something that you had wanted to bring forth. Can you speak to that? I think for me personally, as a reporter covering this issue, it has become increasingly important for my own mental health that I cover solutions. Because if you're only ever focused on the scale and the scope of these problems, man, that's overwhelming. And it's upsetting. And it's hard to 
live in that space all the time. And a lot of times we can say maybe the solutions aren't adequate or aren't quite living up to what is needed or what we hope for. But I have found that doing really in-depth reporting on solutions and treating them with the same kind of investigative rigor that I would covering a problem has been really satisfying. It really makes me feel hopeful. I think that when people read those kinds of stories, it starts their own wheels turning about what are some other solutions maybe we haven't thought about to this problem and how can we nudge these things forward and how can I pitch in? And so I really wanted this book to not be another book that just explained why everything is terrible. I also didn't want it to be a book that told people how to be perfect consumers and just try to protect themselves and their families, because it turns out that this problem is too big for us to do that anyway. A lot of the researchers I spoke to while writing this book have PhDs in organic chemistry, and they said, I can't even shop carefully enough to totally protect my family from these chemicals, knowing everything I know, because they're just too ubiquitous. So I really wanted to focus on systemic level solutions to these challenges, who is advancing them and how the rest of us can help. And writing the book made me feel hopeful about our ability to do something about all this. I'm really glad you mentioned this because I didn't bring up, but I wanted to, this idea of the myth of personal responsibility And I am guilty as a dietitian for helping people choose responsibly in the stores. I think that it's important to know how you might be getting fooled or manipulated in the consumer marketplace. But this idea that we can shop our way out of cancer is really misleading. It's part of that myth. And by focusing on collective solutions, that helps increase our feeling of belonging, which is really at the heart of so much that's wrong in society today. I think that's exactly right. I would never want to discourage anyone from figuring out what steps they can take to protect themselves. I certainly, as a result of writing this book, changed my own shopping and consumption habits to try and be a little safer. But I do think we're often told as Americans that the only voice we have is shopping with our wallet and that that is the best thing we can do. And That's really, first of all, it's just not accurate. And I think it also makes us feel alienated, right? If we're totally fixated on what diligent recyclers we are and trying to become zero waste in our own household and trying to only buy non-toxic products, but we're not connecting with other people to try and change the systems that are putting all these exposures into our lives in the first place, we're really missing out on a big opportunity not just to create change, but also, like you said, to connect with others and build community and feel like we can make progress on this issue. I think it's very similar to what psychologists have been saying about climate anxiety, which is that the best thing you can do to address climate anxiety is start connecting with others who share your concern and figuring out what you can do to make a difference that that makes people feel less stressed, less anxious, and more empowered when they're being proactive and when they're connecting with people who share their concerns. And I think that's very much true when it comes to this stuff, too. Right. Well, Christina, we are out of time. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri, 
But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Christina Marusik, award-winning journalist and author of A New War on Cancer, The Unlikely Heroes, Revolutionizing Prevention. It's an empowering collection of stories and steps that we can all take to make a better world for future generations. Thank you again, Christina, for this marvelous body of work. Thank you so much. It's been really great chatting with you about it.